Okay, Saints. Matthew chapter 22. This evening we begin in verse 34 as we continue going through this chapter. Let's simply bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful once again. Then we come here, it's just not coming to a place and coming to a place where there's knowledge and teaching, but Father, your Holy Spirit is here. You are here. You've been anticipating us coming here and being with you and worshiping and exalting you and receiving, Lord, from you. That these words would not just be knowledge for our mind, but they would be seeds, transforming our thinking, transforming our lives. And so as always, we ask that you would breathe life into your words, that you would breathe an understanding um, of what they are into our hearts, that we would be transformed, we would truly, truly be transformed in our thinking and our living. Tonight, Lord, simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So we see here that initially the Pharisees hear that he had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Now, we already noted how there in Exodus, the Passover lamb was inspected. And as he was inspected, the same thing is happening to this Passover lamb. He's being inspected. And to find out, is there any spot, is there any blemish? And so the religious leaders are coming through. They're questioning him. And initially that we saw, you know, where there was last week, where the Pharisees and the Herodians, they got together. And they begin to say, all right, is, is it okay? What are my responsibilities to pay taxes? Do I pay taxes to Caesars? Do I not pay taxes to Caesars? And, of course, he answers that in such a way that they cannot even begin to comprehend. He just simply silences them. And then the Sadducees come up, and they don't ask just a question as far as what is, what is the right thing? How should we give it? How should we do those things when it comes to taxes? But they ask really to try to make Jesus... Not trip him up so that no matter what he answers is wrong. They try to already instigate that the question that we're asking is going to be foolishness because this whole idea of the resurrection is just foolishness. You know, we just think about this woman who had, you know, seven husbands and then the resurrection, who's this going to be? And he simply says, listen, you guys, you, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures. And I love how he said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? showing the inspiration of the Spirit. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we've already talked about how they didn't get along. Now, rather than just saying, yes, yes, he silenced them and being encouraged, they're like, well, even if they would have made him look bad, we're okay. So the 
when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now they're plotting to say, okay, we have to catch him up on something. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. So as they begin to question, this, this lawyer comes in. And he's not like a lawyer in, in our day. He's more of a scholar, uh, a biblical scholar, um, one who understands the doctrine, understands those things. And, and they will debate. And there's always been a debate among um, people is, is, you know, which was the greatest commandment. If Jesus hadn't said this, what would our debate have been? You know, which is the greatest of all the laws? And, and of course, Jesus answers that. So there is no debate among us. But among those that didn't hear the words of Jesus, they're debating which is the best law, which is the greatest of all the laws. I do want to share with you um, a portion from Mark's gospel. And what Mark does is this. He talks about the same thing, same situation, same guy, same lawyer. But I want to read it to you how Mark opens it up because he says something towards the end. It really shows that although this guy is a Pharisee and, you know, he's, he is one of the, the lawyers, he's one of the scribes, but there's a sincerity about him that as he hears the answer, he was actually accepting the truth. Now, when these other people asked Jesus a question, they were not asking the question to hear truth. They were answer, asking the question so that they could find fault in Jesus. And there's a difference in that. Some people really want to know the truth. Some simply are trying to say, I, if I can ask you this question, it's like one of those gotcha things. Ah, I gotcha now. Look at how good I am. You, you tripped up on the answer. But notice what Mark does. In Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, then one of the scribes came to him, having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well. So all of a sudden, he is hearing these questions that's going on. He's perceiving that Jesus, he answered them very well. And he asked him, what is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, first, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he... And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So here I want you to see that this man, although he comes up, the Pharisees are the ones who wanted to test him. And as they were gathering together, this one comes up, and it is a test, but I want you to understand that I don't know that it was one that 
was not wanting to hear truth. So he heard that Jesus was answering wisely. He said, wow, these are good answers. Let me, I really want to know this. And this is the one question. He thought, I want to know which is the greatest. So back in our text now in Matthew, now that you understand what this lawyer is, as we see in verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, so it's an honest test. So there are some tests that are bad, some that are dishonest, which has happened before. This is one of those honest tests. And so he's looking at honesty, and so he says in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. So what Jesus does is he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're familiar with this passage, it's called the Shema. Because when you say, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, it's simply, that's the Hebrew. Shema, hear, Yisrael, O Israel. So because of that, when you hear the Shema, almost anyone who's a Jewish scholar, Hebrew scholar, will come to Deuteronomy 6. And in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, as he answers this question, this is going to come into play as Jesus now questions the Pharisees, you know, in the second half of the study. But he makes this statement, the Lord our God is one. The term is ikad. It's a compound unity. It's not a singular unity, but it's a compound unity. It talks about one, but there's a plurality of the one that's there. And so when he says the Lord our God is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Now, as he talks about this commandment, he says, now these words that I'm commanding you, is it all the words or is it really focusing on this greatest of the commandment? Well, it could be all the words. Now, keep in mind, if it was all the words, that you would be looking at 613 laws. A lot of laws they had. Now, just as a side note, I'm going to share with you, within the 613 laws, there were 248 laws that said, thou shall, and there were 365 laws that said, thou shalt not. More shalt not than have. And amazingly, it's one for every day of the year. Just in case you're wondering, don't do this, don't do this. But that's the law. So he says, these words, verse 6 in Deuteronomy 6, that I command you, they shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontless between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. If you've ever seen a Jewish house, you're going to note that there on the doorpost, there's this little, um, some are wooden, some are plastic, and so it's called a mezuzah. And within there, there's this little tiny parchment called a cloth. And, and it's, what that parchment is, it's, it has Deuteronomy 6 
the Shema written in it, and so they roll it up and they stick it in this mezuzah. And if you've ever seen a Jew, he'll literally kiss it. He'll kiss it, walking in, walking out. He'll kiss this word, kiss this word. And they'll also have these things called phylacteries. A phylactery is a little box. Um, it's, it's, it has a flat, and it looks like a um, just a square box on top of a little flatter thing. And you'll have two of them. Now, they'll be wrapped with leather, and so one of the boxes, you'll, you have the leather, you'll put on the back of your head and it'll come to your forehead and it'll be on the front between your eyes. The other one, they'll actually wrap on their wrist. They'll take this literally and so they'll do that. So you do have where they've taken it literally, where they'll take the mezuzah, they'll take the phylacteries and they'll put this word in it. And notice that within this, this cloth, the parchment that's there, and this is where I find it interesting that those who say it's all of the 613 laws, they don't put it all in there. It's only one, love. And I think how incredible is that? If that's where you find that, that word that you're speaking, he says, this word love shall be in your heart. Teach him to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. What are you talking about? Loving God. I'll tell you what, it really simplifies things. How are you loving God? And so, as we see this, it's interesting that the, the very first thing that he talks about with all the commandments isn't do this or do that or, or don't have an idol, but it's just simply love God. Now, two passages I want to share with you, and the, the first is found in... The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4. When I say that, you already know what it is. And where Jesus is talking, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. There's a first love that we should have, a first love that we should be directed to. And that's just simply, I just love God. I don't know if, if when you were a new believer and you just finished saying the sinner's prayer, you just finished confessing your sins and asking Jesus into your heart, the one thing I was not thinking is, hmm, is there a law that I can do? Is there something that I should be accomplishing? I was just overjoyed. And my thought is, God, whatever you want from me, it's yours. And I wasn't looking to a law. I was looking to literally him breathing in direction. Breathing in, here's a response. And I was responding in the most amazing way. I was, I was born again. I was now, you know, I had life and my sin was gone and it was taken away. And there was joy and peace and, and a comfort that I had. And I wasn't looking for a do and a don't. I was just looking for him. I was focused on him and I was loving him. But what happens is we leave that first love. We, we, we leave that thing. Now keep in mind that some people say that you leave this Love that's all emotional and gushy and, and those kind of things. What's interesting is this. When you actually look to what love is, the Bible does give a definition. That definition is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've looked at this at other times, and I want to share it with you um, again this evening. I don't want to cover the first three verses. You guys already know about you know the, the things about the tongues and if you don't have love, it's a claiming symbol and, and the other ones. But I want to start in verse 4 because if you know what love does, love is a reaction 
Love is something that we do. It's not something that's just gushy and feeling. Notice what it says in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, I don't know about you, but it's not all, ooh, I'm all gushy. No, it's like, okay, if, if there are wrongs that are done, I'm not going to react to those. And, and instead, I'm going to react with kindness. How amazing is that? That's what love is. Love is not reacting every time somebody does something negative, but it's just like, okay, you did something wrong, let me respond with what? With kindness. How can I react? And so when you see what love is, it's not this feeling, but there are actions that, that take place. So love suffers long as kind. Love does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. So in other words, love is content. I have what I have, and I'm blessed that you have what you have. And I don't need what you have. And so it's not about me. And so keep in mind that what envy is, is I should have what you have. Puffed up thinks that I'm already better. And parading itself is the same thing. Where I flaunt whom I am. And so love isn't about me. Isn't that amazing when it comes to love? Now, you might think, you know, Pastor Lowell, you're, you're wrong. You don't really know me. I don't love myself. I love others, but I don't love myself. So if that's you and you really don't love yourself, then what you're saying is when you get up in the morning, you think about other people. You think about, oh, how could I brush their teeth? How could I put them in and, and you know, give them and, and get a washcloth and wash them and, and shampoo their hair and make them all pretty so that, that they can go out into the world and people would see them and say, oh, that's nice. No, we don't think about others. Why? We love ourselves. I love me. In, in the morning, I'm not thinking about brushing my wife's teeth. I'm thinking about brushing mine. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, washing my hair. I mean, it's about me so I can present myself. And it's not about others. But what real love is, is what? When you say, well, okay, but how can I minister to others? How can I bless others? So when you say that you don't love yourself, keep in mind, we naturally love ourselves. Loving others is the more difficult thing. But this is what God teaches us through His Spirit. Does not envy. In other words, it's not like, I need what you have. Doesn't pray itself, oh, look at me, and it's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. So it doesn't want to lower you in my eyes or in other people's eyes so that I can elevate me. And maybe you've seen that in certain people where their whole thing is they don't do good to just simply allow themselves to be elevated. Other people said, wow, you did good. You did good. I like what you did. But what they do is they try to cut everybody else down. And they say, oh, did you see so-and-so what they did? Did you see so-and-so what they did? And they're always trying to cut someone down because if they can lower someone else in their mind or in your mind, then what happens is what? Well, you naturally are elevated. And this is where he says, Love doesn't do this. Love doesn't put other people down so that you're elevated. Love is what? Humbling yourself, you becoming the servant of all, and then you elevating everyone else. So you understand what love is. Love is denying yourself. Oh yeah, picking up your cross daily and then seeking after the Lord. So he does make this statement. He says, 
Love does not rejoice, verse 6, in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. And so it doesn't rejoice in, in, in the wrongs. You take no pleasure in wrongs. You take no pleasure in what sin does. But you take pleasure in truth. Now, what is truth? That's a great question, isn't it? Well, Jesus happened to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Love rejoices in the fact that there are absolutes and that, that God is the one in charge. God is the one through his grace is doing these things. So it rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Again, you begin to see this whole idea of this long-suffering, the patience, bears all things, believes all things. In other words, believes in the good. When you see someone doing something, you don't always necessarily go to the worst case scenario. Sometimes you wonder, wow, you know, you must be having a hard day, not just you're a jerk. It's like, wow, what kind of a day have you had? And I want to be praying for that person because apparently they're struggling with something. But you look to the good. And so you see here this aspect of love and where he says, Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God. And so it, it's not about what he can do for me. It's what he's already done. And Lord, how can I now respond to you? You've done so much for me. And so he says to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now it's interesting, he doesn't say love the Lord your God with most of your heart. It's really all of it. And, and so keep in mind that there's a surrender that goes on with this kind of love. That I'm going to give myself over to you willingly. I'm going to do this and with everything that I have in my heart, I'm going to do that. With everything that's in my soul or my being, I'm going to do that with everything that's in my mind. And so the beautiful thing is with Christianity is God really wants you to be a thinker. He wants you to be one who reasons through scripture, who reasons through truth. And, and if you've ever wondered what it is to be a thinker, just do this. Read the book of Hebrews. Oh my goodness, was that man a thinker. He had brought in concepts over concepts over concepts, showing just how amazing this Christ is. How amazing Jesus is. And so he would go through time after time after time, and he would compare the infinite with the finite and say, oh, how sad is the finite. How amazing is the infinite. And as he goes through this, we begin to see here, with all your mind, think, reason, understand what's going on. And so he says, this is the first and the great commandment. Now, when he does say that this is the first, loving God, it's interesting how so often that we get this tendency of saying, how do I love God? Which law do I do to show that I love God? Which law don't I do that shows that I love God? And so then you're back to what? Square one. You're back to which is the greatest law. Which law do I do to prove to you that I love you? 
And it's interesting that if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, they are about to come and destroy all of Jerusalem. And God gives to the nation Israel um, hope. He says, let's do this. If you guys can just keep the Sabbath, I will not allow anyone to come and destroy Jerusalem. Oh my goodness. If I just keep the Sabbath, I can do that law. How do I do it? By doing nothing. Do you understand if you do nothing but rest in me and wait on me and, and express yourself to me and just let me minister to you. If you can do nothing, I will spare the city. Guess what they couldn't do? They couldn't do nothing. They weren't able to simply do one commandment, keep the Sabbath, which is do nothing. And I love how God has this incredible way of showing the irony of the human heart. That we think, oh, I've got it, I've got it, which is the law. So we look to this law as love God, and initially we say, well, then which law do I do? Which is the greatest law in order for me to prove to you that I've loved you? And all of a sudden, it's what? It's not a law. It's just drawing near to God and letting him draw near to us. And what he wants more than anything is just intimacy. When, when my wife says, you know what? I love you. And it's not like, oh, you know what? I can tell. You did the dishes. Of course I know you love me. Who would say that? You know, oh, I, I love you. I know you love me. I saw the way you mopped the floor. I know you. No, no. When she says, I love you. What she does is this. She puts her arms around me. She puts her face right up against mine. And we are truly lip to lip. And I know she doesn't have to say anything. I know she loves me. And she doesn't have to prove it by something. And I don't have to prove it by something. Nothing has to be done. It's just an expression of closeness and intimacy. And so he says here, just love God. Draw near to him. Be intimate with him. And then he says this. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amazingly, he says, love people. And so then we look to that point and says, okay, we want to love people. How do we begin to love people? Now, there's a passage that I want to share with you because there's some people who say, I really love God and I love people. I just don't love being around them. I don't know if you've ever heard people say that. I love people. I just don't like them around me. There's a passage in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I want to read that to you. Then we're going to jump over to John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. But in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10 and 11, it says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Who does not, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. He goes, there was a message that you heard from the very beginning, love one another. Well, let's take a look at 1 John 2.24. It says, therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. 
If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also shall abide in the Son and in the Father. In verse 25, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. So it's about from the beginning. And it's so amazing that the message that we heard from the beginning, if it doesn't abide in you, if this message of loving God and loving your brother doesn't abide in you, he simply says, listen, if you're not loving God, if you're not loving, you may be of the enemy and be aware of that. So as he comes to this area where he says the first and the greatest commandment, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. The second one, he says, is like it, and that's loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you're familiar with that passage, that actually comes from the book of Leviticus chapter 19. And what I want to do is this. I want to read verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. He says, Don't want to judge them, don't hold a grudge against them, which is what? Think no evil, be long-suffering, but instead what? Instead just love them. And so the whole question is, well, how do I love my neighbor? Which law do I do to love my neighbor? And it was interesting as the one man came and said, well, really, who is my neighbor? Jesus would share this parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. And it was about a, a, a man who had come and he'd been, you know, overtaken by robbers and he was kind of left there on the side of the road. And this priest came and saw him and he kind of scoots over to the side, passes him by, does nothing. As the priest comes and the Levite comes and they all go around him and then the Samaritan comes and he stops. He stops. And he sees what the man's need is. And he says, well, let me tend to the needs. And so he tends to the needs there. He puts the man on his donkey, takes him into this, this um, motel. And he says, okay, you, you watch over him. You keep him at, at a, this boarding house, house. And whatever he requires, you take care of it. And when I come again, I'll make it good. And so really, what commandment is it? It's about really being aware, looking at the person, Loving the person, finding out their need, and then saying, God, do you want me to become your instrument in fulfilling this need? And it isn't a do and a don't. It's, it's literally listening and intimacy. And what happens is this. When we're looking for the do's and the don'ts, we're not looking for, where's the heart in this? How can I do this in such a way that God is glorified and this person who sees my good works is going to glorify my Father who's in heaven. And so it isn't about these the, 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 the do's and the don'ts as the end result. It's about, Lord, how can I love you? And the response of my love becomes these things. And so when he makes that statement, he says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments, verse 40, hang all the law and the prophets. So I want to share with you 
that what the Lord is talking about is this. And in verse 40, he makes a statement that probably has a little bit more depth than what we normally think. He said on these two commandments, which two commandments? First is loving God. Well, if you're familiar with that idea of loving God, it's what? It's a vertical love. It's a vertical love. You're, you're, I'm up here. I'm looking. It's a vertical love. When you understand what loving your neighbor is, it's what? It's a horizontal love. So you have a vertical love. You have a horizontal love. And on these two hang. Incredible. You've got this vertical love, a horizontal love. And in my mind, I see the cross. And on these two love, loving God and loving people, hang. Hang all the law and the prophets. And so within this, I want to share with you just one passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. You know it, we've covered it, but I want to share with it again. Jesus makes this statement, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So think about verse 40 in this way. On these two, on the horizontal love, on the vertical love and the horizontal to love, hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, hang the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Because he said, I did not come to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. The fulfillment of all the law and the prophets is hanging on the vertical love and the horizontal love. And you think, that's pretty cool. I can grasp that, I can receive that. And this is what here what Jesus is trying to share with this person. That literally when you think about what he's going to do, he's in a sense almost giving a picture of himself saying this is the fulfillment of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him, receive him, would not perish but have this ever life, everlasting life. And so we see this incredible thing that the Lord is doing as he's trying to open up this man's eyes to what is the reality of the commandments. And so keep in mind that when we're looking to this, it's a really good question that you and I need to think in our own minds and in our own hearts and ponder this. Don't just let the message just kind of go into the ether anymore, but really ponder, what do I do to express love? Or what do I think I need to do to express love? Is it devotions? Is it putting time in devotions? Is it prayer? It's like, no. I mean, I do devotions, but it's not to express love. It's because he's already expressed love, and I really want to get to know him. Is prayer to express love? No, it's not to express love. It's because I've been loved, and I want to communicate with him. And so really go back inside your own mind and your own heart and ask yourself, in my thinking, do I express love through a law... Or do I express love through, oh my goodness, I've received this from you. The desire of my heart is now this. And it doesn't become a law. 
Because the law is what? You must do or you must not do. We've already talked about the 613 laws and the 248 is thou shalt or you shall. And 365 is thou shalt not or you shall not. That's the law. And, and you can look to say, well, I'm going to do the law. I'm going to do this thing. And God says, I don't need you to do anything. I want to draw near to you. And if there's an act that I do that draws near to him, to me, it's not a law anymore. To me, it's just love. Do you understand the difference? When I sit down and do devotions, it's not a law to me. It's not a have to do. I get to do that. And, and the same thing with everything else that God calls me to do. It's an overflow of what he's already done in my own heart. So think about that as you ponder how do I love God and how do I love people. Do you instantly go back to what is a great law? What is the greatest law that I can do to express my love to God? Or what is the greatest law that I can do to express my love to people? It isn't that. And if that's where your mind keeps going... Just come back and, and read this passage again and again and again until God begins to really move in your heart. It isn't about duty. It isn't about I have to. It's the overflow of my heart as he directs me through his spirit. I just get to do it. And usually he just kind of directs me with something that I really want to do. And it's no longer, oh my goodness, I'm stuck doing this. Now, in verse 41... While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So the Pharisees are there. They're looking. They're trying to figure out what's the next question that we should do. Jesus now turns the table. And now we saw you know, one question with the Pharisees and the Herodians. We saw one question with the Sadducees, one with this lawyer. Now, think about this for just a second. Now it's the king's question. The king is now saying, I'm going to ask you something. So as the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Now, note this. He's asking them to think about the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And I think... What a great thing to ask these people. What do you think about the Christ? And so, you know, when, when you think about the Christ, who is he to you? Is he someone where you say, wow, he is deserving. I, he's given me everything that I have and he's deserving of whatever he wants. He's deserving of my loyalty and of my life and of my love and whatever you want, Lord. It's all yours. But what do you think about the Christ? And then he asked the question, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, they knew their scriptures. They knew that he would be the son of David. And keep in mind, I want to share a passage with you initially, and it's found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 7. I'm going to focus on just verses 12 and 13 for a moment so that you can understand what it was that these people were saying why he was the son of David. 
There's a promise that what happens is this, that, that God begins to tell David through the prophet Nathan, God is going to do something for you, David. And he says in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, you serve God in the way that he called you, and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this concept here, what he does say is, when God says, when your days are fulfilled and when you rest with your fathers, God says, I'm going to set up your seed after you. Notice it's in the singular, not seeds, not descendants, seed. There's going to be one that comes. Who will come from your body? In other words, it's going to be through you, David. You are going to be the progenitor or the patriarch of this person. And God is going to establish his kingdom. Now notice it doesn't say in the, he is going to establish your kingdom. No, this is the son's kingdom that he's about to establish. Now verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And with that, you see this near sense of fulfillment, the future sense. Solomon here is going to be building the temple that David had designed, that he had brought all the material, and Solomon is going to oversee its building. But Jesus Christ is going to build what? He's going to build a true house. He's going to build the church, the living stone. So he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, here's something where he's not saying, David, your kingdom, because your kingdom is about to end. Now, Solomon's kingdom, it ended, and he gave it to his son. Then it was now his son's kingdom. Now, and, and Rehoboam, of course, he kind of blew it, divided the kingdom. But we see here that God says, this son, his kingdom is going to be forever. Forever. So there's something unique about this son that initially we don't fully grasp. Now, another passage that you are probably aware of, it's normally only you know, written on Christmas cards, but it is in the Bible and you can use it on other days. And it's found in Micah 5 too, but it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, if you're familiar that, you know, when they're in um, 1 Samuel 16, they're talking about Jesse the Bethlehemite, the father of David. David himself was anointed there in Bethlehem. And then from this, as Bethlehem is that city of where, where, where David was born, and of course his father was born, they're from Bethlehem, all of a sudden we see that Micah points out this Bethlehemic heritage. In other words, the same heritage that would come from David. But you, Bethlehem Ephratite, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel. Now, 
clear sense of the prophecy. We already know David was the one. His descendants were the one. But eventually there's going to be the one. Let me tell you this. The seed. Singular. The one out of you shall come forth to me. God says to him. The one to be the ruler in Israel. Whose going forth are from all from everlasting. Why is this so important? Well, over and over again, we begin to see here that what God is trying to show these religious thinkers is I want you to think about the Christ. What has scripture talked about it? Well, they said, whose son is he? Now, I love the way that here Jesus opens this up to get them to think. Because when you say, who is the Christ to you? It could be anything. And yet what Jesus wants to do is he wants to bring about one fact of the Christ that he wants them to begin to grasp. And the point that he wants to grasp is this. Whose son is he? Now eventually he's going to ask them in verse 43, then how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, as he quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemy your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So he initially begins to say, I want you to think about the Christ, whose son is he? And they go, well, he's the son of David. Now understand that what he's trying to get them to think is this. The Messiah, the Messiah comes in humanity. He's born of David. But what happens is this, although he comes and he's a son by birth, as they begin to ponder who the Christ is, don't just go to his birth, go to his nature. Now, as is the nature of who he is, his nature is what? God. And this is why it's so important that when we go back to, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He talks about the Shema, which is what? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's a compound unity. He's trying to get these Pharisees to understand the very nature of the Messiah, the Christ. And because there's a duality of the nature that, yes, he's going to be God, he's going to sit at the right hand of God. They know that because they're in Psalm 110. Let me simply read that to you. He said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so we see here that David, as he's writing this psalm, says, the Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to Adonai, one who's greater than me. Now, no father would ever say about his son, oh, he's my Lord. Now, there are some dads today that are mistaken thinking their sons are elevated. They shouldn't. But there's not a son that would, a father who would willingly say, yeah, my, my son is so far above me. That's not normally what happens. The father understands that his position, the son is always under him. But yet David said of his son, who's the Messiah, and the Messiah, the Christ, is born from him, which means he should be under him. But yet David elevates him, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. 
if the Messiah comes through David in humanity, and the Messiah, David is saying, is sitting at the right hand of God, an equal of God, a compound unity with God, because you don't just come and sit at the right hand of God. That's putting yourself there on an equal level with God, an authority with God, in the sense you are saying, I am God's ruler. I'm the one in that authority. So when he begins to open this up, I want to share you one passage that Jesus talks of himself there at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, I want to read to you verse 16. Jesus makes this statement. And if you're familiar with this statement, there's going to be one more saying in verse 20 where he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming. It's a word that he said that doesn't give a timeline, but we see in verse 16 really the last words of Jesus Christ. It declares this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So he says, I am the root of David, and I am the offspring of David. The very last thing that he says about himself, the Christ, who's now there with God, the Lamb who was slain, who took away the sins of the world, is he's saying, I am the root. In other words, I'm the one who makes David, but I'm also the offspring, that I'm the one who comes from David. So when you grasp these two truths, and he says, what do you think of the Christ? What do you think of him? And what's, what's been amazing to me is this, as I have been pondering so incredibly over the last couple of months who this Christ is. If you get a chance, we are covering the book of Hebrews in Calvary Chapel, Milwaukee. And if you haven't heard the, the studies, if you haven't done it, I would encourage you tap into it. Um, just, if you've never listened to any other books, this is a really good one to grab onto because we're seeing here how the author of Hebrews really begins to say, let me tell you what I think about the Christ. And he says he is so much better. And he does this comparison to everything that the, the, the Hebrew um, Christian would say, I, I would go back to this and I find comfort in this. And everything that the Hebrew had walked through with the law, everything that he walked through with the priesthood, everything that he walked through with the prophets, he shows how Jesus is so much better. Comparing the infinite to the finite. And there's just no comparison. So when he says, what do you think about the Christ? Understand that Jesus directs their thought process to initially say, whose son is he? And the reaction is just overwhelming. Well, he's the son of David. And we know this. Remember when Jesus was coming there into Jerusalem? There what we call Palm Sunday. They were saying, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're going to see how Gentiles say, oh, Jesus, son of David. They call him a messianic term. Any Jew knew that the Messiah would be through the lineage of David. 
But they also had this understanding that the Messiah would actually have some kind of connection with God and be equal with God, but they never put the two together. And what happens is this, is Jesus is now making them think about this process and putting the two together. I want you to think about the duality of the nature of Christ. That he came from David, and yet he was the root that David came from. That he was there as the son of David, but yet David would call him Lord. And so through this, we begin to see, and he says, I want you to say who this is. They go, the son of David. And so he's asking the question, how then does David in the spirit, verse 43, call him Lord? Now understand what Jesus is trying to imply. Last week, we sort of looked at verse 31 and developed it a little bit where it says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? That God wants to speak to us. What Jesus now in verse 43 is saying, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord saying? Now, I want to read to you just a couple of passages. The first is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And I want to read verse 1 and 2. Verse 2 is going to be the key, but I want you to, to see that verse 1 says it's actually David. It opens up in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1 and 2. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Last words of David. What does he say? Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. I'll tell you what. To say that I spoke for God, I was an instrument that God used through his Spirit to speak this truth. So we begin to see, oh my goodness, what David did... Jesus saying it's the spirit that spoke through him. David himself did. This was inspired by God. There's another passage I want you to be aware of found in Acts chapter 1, verse 16. It declares, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who had become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, Peter himself begins to say, listen, the Holy Spirit had to be fulfilled. The scripture, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David. Again, we see the inspiration of Scripture, how God says, this is my word, it is me who declares these things. And of course, by saying that, you already know, I'm going to quote from 2 Timothy 3.16, and all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is going to show you it's probably not a good idea to go there, but if your heart is overwhelmed, go here. 
And so, but don't let your heart be deceived, thinking I should go over here. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Don't go into legalism and don't go into just saying I can sin all I want and go into licentiousness. Stay on that straight path. And so here, so amazingly, Jesus speaks about the inspiration of Scripture. And he's wanting them to ponder it. He's wanting them to focus on, do you understand the duality of the nature of the Christ? Yes, he was fully man. Unto us a child is born. But unto us a son is given. This eternal son was now born through the Virgin Mary. And of course, he's going to be a descendant of David. So when he does do this, they go, he's the son of David. And then he says, well, then how then, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I want you to think about the Christ. To make no mistake, he's still dealing with this. And there's also that reference as he begins to quote from the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, the ikad, the compound unity. And then he says in verse 44, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What's happening? Yahweh is saying to Adonai, you sit here, let me serve you. Incredible. How does that happen? Equality. Compound unity. The ikad. So when he makes this statement, it's such a beautiful way of pointing out where the Lord said to my Lord, <coughs> Yahweh says to Adonai, you sit here in a place of prestige. You sit here as my equal, here at my right hand, and let me make your enemies your footstool. Let me serve you. Now, if David, verse 45, calls him Lord, in other words, is talking about him in that nature that's above him, how is he his son, in other words, in the human nature being below him? And he asked the question. And now you see this mass scratching of the yarmulkes. <laughs> These guys in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. He wants to, once again, reveal himself. And as they're there, they're looking at him, and they're looking at him, and they're looking at him. Keep in mind, he had just recently told them the parable of a king and his son and a wedding. They told him another one about a king and a vineyard, and he gave, eventually says, they'll respect my son. And yet they wouldn't. They said, here's the heir, let us kill him. He's been pointing out this beautiful picture of here is the Messiah in the nature of his deity as the Son of God. And now he's saying, but he's also what? Comes in humanity as the Son of David. Within this position of the nature of Jesus Christ, he's trying to get them to open their minds. Would you look at me? 
Because what they've seen is this. They see him in his human nature, but they've also witnessed over and over and over again a divine nature. Why? Well, Jesus would simply open the eyes of the blind, and he'd make the deaf hear, and he'd raise the dead to life. And he'd do these things in a way that was not stressed. It wasn't like, okay, here's a blind man. Let me get built up here. Oh, I'm ready. I'm, up. I'm up. building up. I'm just, and then power. He didn't have to do that. It wasn't like he, he did this as easy as reading. He did this as easy as breathing. He did this as easy as anything else. Open your eyes. Open your hand. Stand up and walk. And, and he did this with a nature that wasn't having to be drummed up. It was as natural as breathing, as natural as reading. I mean, how many times do you have to say, okay, I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to read. I'm going to read. All right. All right. It's open. It's set. I'm going to look at letters. W, W. All right. Here we are. You don't, you just open up and you read. It's a very natural thing. You don't have to drum it up. What? If it's already yours, if you already own it. Now, when you're younger, you've got to learn the ABCs, and you've got to learn how they phonics, and you've got to learn how they all make words and how the words all have meanings. And these are all things that you grasp, what, as you go on. But Jesus, he didn't have to amp up to apply his divine nature. It was just there. And how incredible is that that he's trying to get them once again to say, open up, open up. The Christ. And I think this is important. What do you think about the Christ? To be honest with you, it is a question that we should very often ask those that we know. What do you think about the Christ? And the amazing thing is this, is the answers that you get. And one of the things that I think is a beautiful thing to share with them about the person of Jesus is you share with them the duality of his nature. Why? Because think about this. Out of all the men in all the world, who could actually say, I and my Father are one? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And for a man to come and say this, this is something that is beyond the norm. And so one of the things that God allows us to do is to just simply take what the Lord has shown us and to open that up. The unique thing is, is when you ask people, and sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's coworkers, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? And the amazing thing is, is a lot of people say what? Well, I think he's a good man. I think he was a prophet. I think he was a really good person. But the issue being is Jesus is now saying, not just a man, there's another nature within this man that you have to comprehend, that you have to reason through, that you have to judge. Because if he is not God in the flesh, if he's not sitting at the right hand, if he's not equal with God in that way, that the Father didn't say to the Lord of David, who is the Messiah, who was through his lineage, you sit at my right hand till I make your enemies. Let me serve you. 
then you're missing out a huge understanding of who this Christ is. Because men are just men. Jesus was the God-man. And it's an amazing thing to be able to share with them the duality of his nature and to use that as the witness. Because when you say, who is the Christ to you? Who's the Christ? Well, you can say, well, all right, a man, he was this and he did this, yeah. But notice what this man did. This man did all these things. Now, here's the thing. His enemies had no problem admitting that he did these miracles in a very natural way. What they told was this. We're not denying your miracles. We're denying the power behind your miracles. You're not doing this by God. You're doing this through Beelzebub. So they're understanding the works that he did were of a divine nature, of a nature that was beyond human being, beyond man. And he's portraying it where all the people said, this has to be the Christ. Who else could be doing this except the Christ? And so as we come to this, I think it's a beautiful thing for us to close up and really to ponder when I'm sharing Jesus. Do I share him as just a man? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He just loves everybody. Or am I sharing is this is God who became a man? God who served mankind. God who went to the cross. God who shed his blood for our sins. God who went to the tomb. God who rose from the dead. When it's God who is the sacrifice, God who does the work, now all of a sudden this work of salvation isn't just me responding to a man, but your answer is you responding to God. What are you doing with the gift of God? What are you going to do with this gift? And are you going to reject God's gift to say this is the access that you can have to come to me. No other access. And it's an important thing for us to begin to ponder, begin to realize, again, what do you think about the Christ? It's a great question. Now, your family members are going to say, all oh, of this again. But let them actually ponder this. Ponder the dual nature of who this man Jesus is. And if they begin to ponder the duality of his nature and then realize, because it is, how do they, they term it? Where in the writings of history, you can verify something that is true by how closely it was written. In other words, like Napoleon being defeated, defeated at Waterloo, how do you know? George Washington being our president, how do you know? Well, it was written. Well, we know people were written about, well, Jesus Christ lived. They, they know that he lived. They know that he was a man. There's, unless they're really looped out, everyone knows there was this person, Jesus. They, they do. Even our very world, the calendar that we sit in is what? Well, right now we're in 2021 AD, in the year of our Lord. Why do they go 2021? Why aren't they like 6,000 like the Jews? Why are they 20 or 5,000 like the Jews? Why are they 2021? Because it's in the year of our Lord. We, we look and we divide our history to B.C., before Jesus was born, and now it's in the year of our Lord. This is how we do it. The whole world 
bases its days and calendars and years on the person of Jesus Christ. They know he exists. They know he was a man. The key being for us is to what? To share the duality of his nature. And I think sometimes this becomes the real key to sharing Jesus. We share him as a man. We share him as these things. But we need to share him as duality. He is the God-man. And it's something to begin to pray through. Something to begin to work through. And I'll guarantee you, as you brush up on these thought processes, as you begin to think about the Christ and cause others to think about the Christ, your understanding of who he is and what he has done is going to explode in your heart. And you're going to be like, oh my goodness, Lord, how could I not tell people of the salvation that they can have in you, the God-man? Amen? Father, we are so grateful for this word, so grateful for who you are and, and how you work these things in our hearts. I do pray that we would have that understanding, Lord, that there is a beautiful way to portray you. And it's even to the enemies, even to those who did not want to hear and did not want to receive. And their answer was just so classic. No one was able to answer you. And Lord, I don't know if they didn't know the answer or they didn't want to say the answer. But Jesus, you are the only one with the dual nature. <laughs> We're all from men. You're from God. Thank you for coming and showing us, Lord, these two powerful truths. One, as you answer the question of the greatest, what is love? And two is to point people to you, the very picture of love. Do the work in our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.